Hey everybody, welcome to Quest for Peace. I'm Aya Zaktar. If you've never seen this show before and you're like, hey, what is this? Is this Superman 4? It's not Superman 4. I'm really tired of that joke. So let's retire that right now. So this show is actually about my quest for peace. I try, I, I've been trying to figure out since I hit 29, because I was going to be 30. I was like, okay, I have to figure out how to be more sane. I was a very volatile person. Uh, I would get angry at like the slightest things. And I mean like angry, angry, like break stuff. Like that's not healthy. And I had a son on the way and I was like, you know what? I need to make sure that if he has any of the same issues I do, I can tell him hey, this is how I fixed it, and this is what you need to know, because likely his brain will be similar to mine, and it is, and he's, he's almost five now. And so I actually have been able to help him with tips every now and then. So it's been about seven years that I've been trying this uh, plan, this idea of, of, of uh, getting inner peace and calmness, and I wanted to share that with you guys, so I started this show at uh, gfqnetwork.com, and uh, thankfully Andrew lets me do the show here. So... And we have guests on, and I usually get to learn from them what they do to be peaceful, what you know, t- tips, tricks. It's not like a how-to show. It's more like what experiences they had because I've always found finding out what other people go through can give me some perspective and help me out to figure out what's going on. And today we've got Dan Ackerman, a person I work with over at CNET. This is not a CNET program. This is just, a, just us personally talking. So anything he says is not the opinion of CBS, nor mine. It's just us talking. Dan, if people don't know you, uh, could you tell them who you are and what you do? Uh, you bet. Uh, my name is Dan Ackerman. I'm a, I'm a New York native. I'm a former radio DJ who somehow ended up in journalism, working at magazines, then dot-com, 1.0 startups, uh, and then finally, uh, with the fine folks at CNET and CBS, I am a couple of weeks away from my 10th anniversary over there, uh, where I do a lot of things, including review a lot of computers and write about computer hardware and all sorts of technology stuff. Okay, so you've had quite a bunch of different careers. Now, let me ask you something. When did you decide to be a DJ? Like, that's not exactly a normal job. I don't think anyone who was ever a radio DJ, uh, except for maybe Howard Stern, who frequently writes about and talks about how, like, he wanted to do that from when he was a little kid and his father worked in radio, knows that that's what, you know, they're going to do at least for a while. People tend to fall into that because um, somewhere on the, on the showbiz ladder, it's about three rungs below Ticket Scalper being a radio DJ. So it's not a high-class profession. I think I did uh, college radio uh, and after that, uh, I happened to get a job at a radio station, like a real entry level job. And I kind of worked my way up the ladder a little bit from that, but even working your way up the local, uh, radio ladder in different markets, um, it, it, it it's a super grim industry. It was 20 years ago and it's 10 times as grim now because 75% of the stations are literally robo stations run by robots. At least back then you had real DJs. Uh, but the best you could hope for was to make, you know, whatever, five or ten bucks an hour, uh, get some good local club DJ gigs, and occasionally talk your way out of a traffic ticket. Would you ever describe yourself as intense? Because I, I, you seem relatively laid back. I've, I've known you at work for a while now. and But it takes a certain kind of mindset to go, okay, I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to be reviewing stuff. I'm going to do this stuff. How would you describe yourself? That's because you've only seen latter period, Dan. Earlier period, Dan, up through maybe a few years ago, was much more intense. I think going back to that sort of angry young man phase that that everybody goes through, uh, even in in radio, I was like, uh, oh, I want to be like you know Lenny Bruce or Howard Stern or George Carlin, and these you know old guys running these stations uh, just have no idea what's going on. When in reality, they were just trying to keep the doors open and get an ad from like the local car dealership or something. And I was giving them a hard time by being you know really annoying and like self-referential on the air and doing all this wacky stuff that in their business model they just didn't need. And and I get that now. Uh, and even later, going into uh, traditional journalism, I started off uh, working at a at a beer magazine, and then went into trade magazines, which is great training uh, for anybody uh, who wants to learn how to write. Is to work at a trade magazine for a while. Uh, I again had that sort of you know, oh look at these old guys. We need some new blood in here to make some real changes and decisions. Without realizing, I think the responsibility that went along with that. And I think once you hit, dare I say, your early forties. 
uh, like like I am now, then you kind of understand what everyone's been doing all this time and how the world has worked for you know centuries and centuries uh, and and back even further, and you lose some of that uh, 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 sense that because you're a young person with new ideas, you're the only one who knows what's going on. So did you do anything actively to dial down the intensity? Did you enjoy being intense? Because people have described me in the past as very intense, and I, and I can be seriously intense, and that's basically how I get to a, from A to B. I, I'm, just, I'm just on point, and I try to stay on point a lot. Uh, but I've been trying to dial it back a lot because it's just, it, it can be too much for lots of people because my level of intensity is unnecessary at times. Did you do anything other than age? Oh, I think there were a lot of factors that went into it. Um, a lot of it for me early on was this sort of like journalism vibe uh, where, where you were sort of like, you know, rebelling against the man. And I used to think even at my first editor-in-chief job, which I got when I was 26, which was probably way too young, as the editor-in-chief of a nightlife and music uh, news and information site called Club Planet that I think is still around, um, I used to say, like, when you fight with the sales guys and the business guys, that's actually necessary because that creates friction, and friction creates heat, and, and that's where you get good sort of content and good sort of experiences from. So I sort of deliberately looked for areas where you could have that tension, and I would storm out of the building regularly. I would get fired all the time. And they get rehired uh, before I hit the elevator bank. I'm going to wait for this uh, fire engine to go by. Uh, all, all the inflated property prices in Brooklyn, they're going to go back down because the whole borough is on fire now. <laughs> wait, oh, yeah, these things happen. That's a good thing we have a fire department around. Oh, yeah, so you moved to so, Brooklyn. Uh, well, actually, I, I did, I did. And you seem like a Manhattanite, though. Did you have issues? I, I'm actually a fake Manhattanite. Uh, I grew up, I spent my first 17 years in the Bronx. Uh, and then later moved to Manhattan after college and grad school, uh, and then lived there for you know ten years until I was literally gentrified out of my apartment when someone bought the building I lived in that a family had owned for you know ninety years and just said we're not renewing anybody's lease, everybody get out of here. And here I am in Carroll Gardens. Did you have any issues with actually doing that move? Because I know my brother is going to be moving to New Jersey, and I'm going to disown him for that, you know, because. He, he's a doctor. He's a good guy. He's you know he's very intelligent and a very funny guy. But he's moving to Jersey, and he, and I'm like that. That's a t- you, can, you can't do that. And I, I have I still for some reason have this ridiculous pride of like when I was uh, I was looking for an apartment recently. I was like, well, I don't want to live over hundredth Street. I don't want to go past like ninety something even. And 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 my girlfriend Liz thought I was being snobby. And the reason why I want to get this very clear by the way, the reason why I didn't want to go up that far is because trains break down. Very, very much up there. That's one of the reasons why I was like ruling off a lot of other places. But where I live is like on an express stop, so it's like perfect. So I don't ever want that one to go away. Um, but oh, it's so so true. How do you get over such things like that? Because it 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 seems so petty to be like, well, it's a different borough. I'm not gonna go out there. Or like New Jersey, like oh, you're not. So you get more money and you get to have a nice house. And what's the downside exactly? Other than it's New Jersey. How, how do you get past something like that? No, I completely agree with you, and I would not have been able to do it before this point in my life two years ago when I did. I happen to be fortunate enough to live in some of the coolest neighborhoods of Manhattan for a long time, uh, in the East Village, in Soho, on the Lower East Side, in Nolita, and each time I had a really cool apartment also. I had duplexes, I had apartments with private outdoor patios. Uh, It was fantastic. Uh, and believe me, uh, if I could afford it, I, I would have bought a place, uh, you know, in any one of those neighborhoods. Um, now, as a parent, I think your priorities do change a little bit. Uh, and when and when the uh, building I was living in in Nolita got sold, and I basically just had a couple months to find something new, all the stars aligned perfectly for me to move where I am now, which is this converted uh, 1918 uh, factory building with nice high ceilings here in here in uh, Carroll Gardens, overlooking this uh, very nice private uh, courtyard with trees and stuff. Uh, so, you know, would I move back to Soho? Of course I would. Uh, am I happy to be here now that six months after I moved in, even this neighborhood of Brooklyn became unobtainable for so many people? Yes, I think I, I've been super fortunate, so I'm trying to see it from that point of view. Okay, so... You don't have the American dream, so to speak. You know, you don't have like the big house, the two cars, the chicken in every pot kind of thing. For a native New Yorker, this is a big house. See, see that, that's I was going to get to that because right now I live in a very small place. It's a, a 500 square foot apartment. 
I have two large dogs because I bought them when I didn't have an apartment. I had a house. Uh, and, and my girlfriend lives with me. So we, we there's four of us in this space. And my son visits um, quite regularly. So it can be five living things in 500 square feet. And the weirdest thing is I'm happy with that. I know it's small and you can't really get away from people. But you kind of have to deal with that. But like it's where I am and I really enjoy that. What do you, What is your take on like the whole American dream concept of like you must do this to be happy? Of course. And to a, to a real New Yorker, that doesn't actually sound unusual in the slightest, having a bunch of people in 500 square feet. A 500 square feet is a decent, you know, junior two bedroom, uh, depending on what neighborhood you live in. Um, I think, I think that if you grew up here, and I'm not sure where, where you grew up. I, I, I forget your, your personal background story. Uh, I, I think some of those equations that people have about going, you know, moving further out into the suburbs as you get older kind of break down, especially if, uh, uh, you didn't grow up even as many New Yorkers did, like in New Jersey or Long Island or Westchester, but in the city proper, uh, you may not have that sort of DNA, you know, kind of in, you know, programmed into you from an early age. Yeah, so I, I grew up in Queens. My folks are from Pakistan. They moved over here when, uh, let's see, I wasn't born yet. So they moved over. Uh, they lived in Brooklyn for a couple of years. I was actually born in Brooklyn, and when my uh, youngest brother was born, they bought a house in Queens. So I grew up in Queens, and we had a nice um, couple-bedroom house, and we had a nice big driveway and all this other stuff. And then we, had, we moved from like one part of Queens to another part of Queens. So basically, I grew up in the suburbs. And it was, I always, I did not like the suburbs. I, I would always mm-hmm. watch television and comic books and I'd, I'd be like, I want to go to this, this city, you know, like, they go, well, technically this is New York city. I'm like, yeah, but this is the suburbs. This isn't exactly the same. I don't see exactly the same kind of thing. Cause like, I don't remember seeing houses like this in, in a, a particular comic book. I was going to say Spider-Man, but they actually do have houses in Queens and Spider-Man. Yeah. So that's a very bad example. But uh, yeah, I've always wanted to be in the city and I finally got to it through a very strange way by way of California, getting a job in San Francisco to move to the New York office. Totally awesome. So I get to work in New York. Um, I really like it. It's a, do you oh, feed yeah. off of energy like that? Oh, of course, of course. I mean, even when I was in graduate school, when I moved back to New York, I went to Fordham for graduate school and that's up in the Bronx. But I lived in the East Village and just commuted up there every day because I really had to be down there. And this was the East Village back in the mid to late 90s when it, it was not the, the playground it is today. Uh, I did an actual walking tour uh, uh, un, unintentionally on Friday with my wife. We, we took the day off and we just ended up walking through all the different neighborhoods that we lived in or I used to live in. Uh, according to my iPhone pedometer, uh, it was like 20,000 steps. It was a big walking day. Uh, and we went past the the bank on 2nd Avenue in St. Mark's Place that back when I lived in the East Village was the only cash machine, the only ATM in the entire neighborhood. So if you lived on Avenue, between Avenue B and C like I did in like 1996, 97, you had to haul it all the way over, even in the middle of the night, to uh, uh, 2nd Avenue St. Mark's if you needed some money. Let me ask you something about um, putting yourself out there. You've been in a lot of public kind of mediums, right? And with that comes criticism, lots and lots of criticism. Everyone's got something to say about something, right? How do you handle that kind of stress? Because it seems like, you know, it it can be unreasonable sometimes, but how do you deal with that? Oh, sure. They always tell you, you know, don't read the comments or or if you put out an artistic work, don't read the reviews or people claim that they don't. But everybody does. Everybody peeks at it. Um, I think you do have to not take it personally. I think people like you and I working and kind of growing with the Internet uh, a kind of community as that's come together, uh, that's sort of shown us a little bit of behind the scenes where, you know, if somebody's writing something online, whether it's a withering personal criticism or just someone telling you you suck via a tweet or a comment on a story you wrote, uh, you know that these people are actually just sort of acting out their own agenda. It's not really about you. Um, and I think once you realize that, uh, then it's a lot easier to deal with, and and, and there, there's always been sort of a, a remove between the the uh, expert or the creator uh, and the audience, and I think that for a while online that blurred a little bit because everyone could be a publisher, everyone could be you know a, a, a magazine editor, they could start their own website, their blog. So all of a sudden, the line between reader and writer got really blurred, and I think that's sort of settled down a little bit now. Uh, so people who are in the sort of professional uh, uh, editorial and writing and video making and music making and whatever else making class uh, 
can read these comments and, and appreciate the constructive criticism where it's there. But the nasty stuff, you realize that the people are really sort of uh, working through their own issues when they write that. They're not really, they don't really think you personally suck. So you've, you've, you found a way to take these comments and try to, you know, figure out why they are happening as opposed to just like dealing with it on its face, it seems like. And that, I think it, that's, that's very healthy. That's very smart. It, 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 it's one of my great things I think about now and I try to recommend to other people, uh, which is sort of part of my uh, much more recent uh, uh, interest in, in, in mindfulness and presentness and meditation, uh, which is to simply say, uh, you know, respond, don't react. Which means if something is going to get a reaction from you of any sort, stop first, consider what's going on, and then you can respond in a smart way rather than just reaction. A reaction is automatic. A reaction is instinctual. It's animalistic. And it's very rarely the best thing you could do in that circumstance. You know, I, I was just talking about that with somebody else, about this idea of, okay, what you can control is your reaction. That's the only thing you can do, right? Because you have a, you have a situation that, that happens and the event has happened. You really can't do much about it. What do you want to do? Do you want to be angry now? Because if you're going to stay angry, you get to do that. That's basically your own choice. And uh, I've done a, I've dabbled a bit with meditation. I've I've fallen out of the habit, unfortunately. Um, I was I mentioned this before on other episodes where uh, what I really got out of meditation was, like you were saying, mindfulness and the idea of being present in the moment. And that was, I do a lot of guided meditations, and I have an app for that, which helps me. It's called Bootify 2. I don't know if you've used it. Ah, um, I, use, um, in, I use Insight Timer. Insight, is it a guided meditation? You can choose. They have some of those also. Uh, and you can either just do some chimes and set the time, and you, know, you can compare it with other people and stuff, or you can go through their list of, of little things. Um, I, always, I, I rarely talk about it because one of the smart things I've heard about it is, especially if you're you know, at the super, super beginner, early amateur stages like I am, if you ever feel the urge to talk about it, you should probably just go do some more of it instead. That's, that said, being as this is one of the topics that, that, that you talk about on the show, I, um, I, I'm more open to talking about it than I usually do. I, I highly recommend to everyone, and I've gotten a few of them for people for like Christmas presents, a book by a guy named Dan Harris, who's an ABC News anchor. Uh, it works on Nightline, I think. And he wrote a book called 10% Happier last year that, that actually got a decent amount of press. And it was his um, kind of journalism uh, um, autobiography as somebody who was a war correspondent uh, and went through a lot of traumatic stuff. And how, as a professional skeptic, he came to embrace meditation for its performance-enhancing and scientifically proven uh, uh, benefits. Uh, uh, he, he goes to great lengths to point out that he's not a hippie, he's not uh, you know, doing any of that stuff. He, he's really interested in, in the sort of uh, personal performance-enhancing uh, benefits from it. And that's his point, that if you do it, you know what? It's not going to change your whole life, but you might be 10% happier, which is actually pretty good. Yeah, I, well, my, I fell out of the habit right now just because I've been uh, trying to get back into exercising. I took like a, a three-week thing where I basically was not doing anything. I got a little sick, so I just kind of fell out of the habit. And what I found is that when I'm doing good habits or I'm rebuilding habits, I have to do them one at a time and build on mm -hmm. them. Otherwise, if I try to make you know big changes, four or five changes at one time, it's much more likely for me to fail. And then I don't want to do any of them as opposed to building on good habits. So that's why I'm out of it right now and I need to not excuse myself i think it's been about two weeks about solid exercise i can go back to meditation on that but i do get that mindfulness in the workouts because i do something right now called insanity max 30 yeah yeah which uh, if, if you guys on dan you you've heard of it uh have you done this workout my wife does all the p90x stuff all the beach body stuff okay um, so you know of it it's it's intense i watch <laughs> it's definitely fun to watch i will say that but it, it doing it it basically you have no choice you are not thinking Okay, you are maybe thinking about how your arm is going to move or your leg is going to move or how your push-ups are going to go, but there's no time to worry about anything else. And that was what I was getting out of meditation was just, just literally be there. And that is something that uh, like in between, like we recorded a bunch of shows today. I just wanted to stop my mind for a second. I just started to feel the chair, just literally feeling the chair because it was another meditation I'd heard before. I'm like, try that. It actually helps a lot. Um, no, that, that, that's entirely correct, and, and the way you describe it is perfect because what you, what you want to do is not let that voice that's telling you about things that happened in the past sort of 
uh, dominate you and that other voice about things that may or may not happen in the future, those are the two things that sort of distract you and, and make you, frankly, less peaceful is this obsession people have with sort of these, these stories of their lives from the past and these potential stories from the future. And that's sort of the presentness and mindfulness is, is getting rid of those. Uh, again, not, not to give Dan Harris too many plugs, but the great thing in his book is at the end, he gives you a little sort of uh, uh, like, here's how you do it section. And he says, listen, five minutes a day, Never tell yourself you're going to do anything more than that. And if you just do five minutes a day, you're going to get a tremendous benefit out of it, and it's not going to feel like a big deal. So that's what I try to do. And I, and I don't even do that. Maybe three times a week I'll get around to it. Uh, my dentist is oddly – he teaches like meditation and meditative techniques to dental students uh, at, at NYU. He's been doing this a long time. He had a great uh, technique he taught me. This is what we do. We go to the dentist. We talk about meditation. Um, <laughs> Uh, he, he called it like the three breath. So, you, you know, if you do the, the focus on your breathing and, and the feeling of the breath in and out, and that's sort of the basic technique. If you just stand there and you just do three repetitions of that, that four-step process, pause, in, pause, out, the, the four steps, just do it three times. It takes like 45 to 60 seconds. And if you do that a couple of times during the day, just whenever you have time, that's actually really good too. Because what you're doing is, it's 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 like doing lifts. You're you're just working out a part of your brain. Yeah, that's another thing. It's the idea. If if you keep doing it or you keep practicing it, it becomes much easier. Now, one of the things uh, about uh, I, I, I'm going to disagree with you there, simply because in my very very again very limited understanding of this, uh, it doesn't matter if it gets easier or not easier or harder or not harder. Just the act of doing it is the rep. Of, of lifting the weight. So, so you're almost not even trying to make it easier or let yourself you know, not think about the past or the future or anything like that because whenever a thought comes in, you put it aside and again, that's the, that's the rep. So it's, it's just the doing it and, and not passing judgment on how you're doing it. I just mean that if you can actually put yourself in that position, it gets easier to do it again the next time. You go, okay, oh, yeah. Because like, like you're saying, it is like working out in some respects. Uh, meditation, when you do it, uh, when I was doing it anyway, it's not about the actual meditation. Like, okay, fine, you're having a good day, bad day. It's when you when you run into that day that's lousy that you can pull that information, mm-hmm. that method of thinking back. That's actually what its greatest benefit is. It's really hard to meditate when you're angry. And it can help you to kind of get out of it. But at least in my experience, it's actually doing it when everything is fine. Meditating when things are fine, it seems like it's counterintuitive. Why would you like want to be peaceful when things are good? It's like... Because you're training yourself to right. think It's like differently. you're working out when you're healthy, so you, the muscles stay healthy. And it's, when you need the muscle, it's there. I was very skeptical of the thing, too. I was like, okay, this is oh, hippie stuff, and like, I'm not a hippie. I'm a scientist. I have a bio degree. I have a law degree. I, I, I do this, okay? I, I do science, okay? And I, I do reason thinking. Like, you know what? This doesn't seem crazy. It's like you're actually in the moment. And um, are, you, are you good at being in the moment? How, how is your? Uh, you said you're a newbie at this. So how how oh. how are you at this right now? I don't know. It, it it's hard to say. I I I almost get excited when I'm trying to do it and it's not working, and I have to take the thoughts and move them out of the way and kind of consider them in a non-judgmental way and put them aside because that just means I'm getting the rep in. Sort of, I'm I'm, I'm getting the pull up done. Uh, so 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 either way, I think I think it works fine for me when I when I get the time to do it, and that's my biggest challenge. Also, I think is finding that five minutes a day. Even so, you have two kids, right? I uh, just one, just one. So it feels just, like two sometimes. I thought you had two. Okay, we have one. Um, so how, how did that impact you in the way you basically? At least for me, I'm just going to explain it this way. I know that I had to basically get my act together because I have to be responsible for a human being. And if I am a crappy human being, I shouldn't really have another one of me. So I decided to kind of fix it all. Did you have any, any like awakening in your head of like, I got to be better? You know, I feel like it happened to me at a time when I was ready for it. I, I don't recommend this for everyone, but I think my wife and I were both 37 or 38 when Dash was born. Uh, so we had certainly, and we'd already been married, you know, whatever, nine years or something like that. So we had plenty of time to sort of get things together. And we were both much more advanced, you know, in our careers and in our lives. Uh, so for some people, that's, that's the right choice. So I didn't necessarily feel I had to make any major lifestyle changes, but I knew I would have to adjust to, uh, I think, particularly scheduling issues. And I think the, the, one, the one learning I've taken away from that whole experience is that when you have a child, uh, at least for someone in my circumstances, uh, 
it's not so much that you lose the ability to do the things that you want to do or have the schedule you want to have or, or engage in all the activities that you enjoy. Uh, it's that the timing of it changes and the difference is you may not be able to do it right when you want to. You may have to uh, work on your schedule a bit to find time to fit it in. And, and to me, that was the biggest change and adjustment. But it was also positive and, and very heartening in a way because I realized that I didn't have to give up everything uh, that I enjoyed and I didn't have to become just like this parental robot uh, uh, that, that some people seem to feel is going to happen to them when they have a child. Yeah, for, for my kid, um, I, I wanted to make sure that I treated him like an adult, which is really odd to say because I, I, I knew when, when I was a kid, I still have weird – I still have memories of four or five years old when people would talk to me like, hi there. Is everything going well? And I'm like, why are you talking so slowly? Are you okay? Did you get hit in the head? What happened there? Uh, I really – I didn't like people talking down to me even when I was four, which is ridiculous. And so I have made like my, one of my most valiant efforts, and I, I think I've only failed twice, is never saying because I said so. That is not a reason to do something. That's a terrible reason. Every time I'm asked why, I actually give him a reasoned response because that is what he should be expecting. Do you, do you find yourself doing anything um, either oh, different or Oh, I completely or like, agree with you. I completely agree with your methodology. That's almost exactly what I try to do. Um, I also... Uh, never liked that sort of kiddie speak when I was a kid. I always wanted to talk to the adults and hang out with the adults. Uh, one of my early nicknames was Old Man Dan because I just wanted to hang out with the old people. Uh, and I, I do the same thing. I try to do the reason thing. It's not, it doesn't always work because the child's brain, especially when they're like less than four, um, it doesn't work the same way. They, they don't have the same understanding of cause and effect and responsibility and, uh, and, and logic. But you can still try um, I also try to do the why thing, but eventually, if you get into a big series of whys and you keep going back, 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 you end up at the big bang and you can't go back any further than that. And I've done that in whatever, uh, put your shoes on why, it's gone all the way back to the beginning of the universe just because I keep answering every question. So, so eventually you're going to run out of answers. Yeah, then I get to the, the, the phrase, you know, son, I, I, I don't know. I literally don't have an idea. We can look it up and we can find out, but I, I don't have an answer for you. And he just kind of looks yeah, at me like... All matter compressed into a tiny ball, and then in one moment it exploded. And from that, the stardust that eventually created these shoes that you should put on your feet. <laughs> yeah, I, I've definitely learned a lot of patience from my son because oh yeah, there's no there's no ability. Sometimes you're like, okay, well, look, the reason why you have to do this is because you have to put shoes on. This is actually a very good example. This seems to be a fight for some reason. You got to get your shoes on because I'm not letting you walk outside barefoot. It's dangerous. That's basically the only reason why. There's really no good reason why you have to wear shoes, I think, other than like you don't want your feet dirty and you don't want to step on glass in the city. That's basically why you're wearing shoes. Um, and I totally lost my train of thought. But anyway, kids, I think, are actually relatively good for patience building. But if you have no patience to start with, they will probably drive you insane. Um, oh, yeah. So what other, what other things do you do to make yourself happy? Uh, I mean, you obviously you, you do enjoy your job. I'm, I'm assuming you enjoy your job. I mean, that's a big part of it, but that's also what made me – unpeaceful for so many years was that I took it, I thought they took it seriously, but I took the, the, the kind of responsibility we had as writers seriously, uh, when it came to sort of, you know, dealing with the audience and, and, and using them as sort of your, your, your goal, everything you write, you have to think about who's going to read it and why and what they're going to get out of it, not just information, but enjoyment and just a general sense that their time has been well spent. And whether at the, at the company that we work at or other companies that I've worked at, if other people I've worked with did not seem to be taking that responsibility as seriously as I thought they should, I would get very cross with them uh, and I would be difficult to work with. And I think that's something I've only managed to dial down really in the last couple of years. Um, I, I used to be very intense about sort of the responsibilities of our positions and, and, and what that entails. And even today when there's a, a bug or a problem and I feel like other people uh, within the organization are not taking it seriously and I think it affects you know, our readers, which, which is kind of the people I work for, uh, I still get very upset about it and I have to stop myself from sending a self-righteous, angry email about it uh, because at the end of the day, that's what I'm all about, uh, uh, you know, providing, providing a good service uh, to the people who come and spend their time and read what we write. Do you ever take a philosophy course in your, in your academic I, days? I, I, I'm sure I have. I, I don't recall too many of the specifics of, of them. Uh, that frankly, philosophy and political philosophy too, actually. 
Um, I started flipping through a, a book on my Kindle about a year or so ago that was sort of a, a French philosophy primer, uh, uh, as in written by a French person, not about French, but just going through every school of thought, going back to uh, the, the, the ancient Greeks and forward. Uh, but I'll admit I did not get very far. Yeah, what I was getting at with the idea is like I, I took philosophy in college and I basically did it, not basically, I honestly just did it because I wanted a four-day weekend. It was the only class that was available that would fit and it, it, it fit every like requirement. So I'm like, cool, I'll just take a philosophy course and I will have four days off, which is freaking awesome. Um, and the funny thing is it kind of broke my brain, which was great because at the time I needed that. And it basically taught me to question everything. You know, I'd, I'd get really frustrated with other students who like in discussion class, they'd be like, why does one plus one equal two? Why can't it equal three? And I'm like, well, this is math. You can't argue math. Okay. This is just, if you wanted to argue this, this is not exactly it. And, and after, you know, weeks of this, even my, even my TA was realizing that I was getting way more out of this than they thought, because I was like, well, maybe, I guess so. If you take two pieces of clay and you put it together, that's one piece of clay. So technically that is one thing, but it's more mass and whatever. So the, the concept for me was questioning so much more over the years, because when I came into college, I was like, right winger, put everybody in jail kind of concept. I'm sure lots of people grow up like that. Then in college, I'm like, oh, that's a bad idea because then they don't learn anything and then we, we persecute them more and then they can't do, they can't have jobs and then they go back to crime. It's all bad. Th- so we got to do totally different things. But keeping your mind open, how do you keep your mind open still right now? Because for me, like, I don't want to get set in my ways. I want to make sure that I'm still willing to you know, listen to other people and, and figure out what's going on. Cause you're like, I'm 35. I know what I'm doing, but how do you keep yourself from uh, getting stuck? Yeah. I think that happens to a lot of people. I think I, I've been fortunate in that I, I, while I've thought that I was you know, talented and good at what I did and, and, and had a certain amount of skill, I never thought that I knew better than everyone else. Uh, maybe because I've been exposed to so many smart people during my life. Uh, that I never thought that I had the one right answer and everyone else had the wrong answer. I thought that there were, there were maybe, you know, instead of one right answer and 10 wrong answers, there's probably 500 right answers and 5 million maybe not quite as right answers or, or wrong answers. Uh, so I, I've always tried to remember that even though what I'm doing or what I think may make perfect sense to me and may even be a good idea, there are many other – that's not mutually exclusive of other good ideas also. So I, so I try to keep an open mind about that. And the thing I've developed more recently uh, and perhaps in conjunction with trying to be more mindful and, 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 and practicing uh, meditation uh, is, is simply realizing that a lot of these issues, uh, maybe not big you know, uh, uh, ones of political you know, thought and philosophy and, and, and people's social needs and, and things like that, but, but issues of what happens to me personally and the work that I do and the people I interact with, um, it actually doesn't matter that much. If I want to do things one way and everyone else wants to do things another way, if I do it their way, it's really not going to make that much of a difference at the end of the day. Yeah, that, unless they're dead wrong, in which case. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. Uh, I mentioned something a, a while ago. It was something about this book. Uh, Richard Carlson wrote the book. It was one of those "Don't Sweat the Small Stuff" books. That's exact. Yeah, that that that's actually pretty close to it. And I used to fight over every assignment. I wanted every you know high profile byline. I was like any big story. I wanted to cover it. And now I, I don't feel that way anymore. Simply because. At the end of the day, nobody remembers it, you know, six months or a year later. And you could be out just having a better time and enjoying yourself more if you didn't get so obsessed with uh, that sort of thing. You know, it's funny. I used to pride myself in uh, – I, I used to do product reviews elsewhere. And I would pride myself on getting, like, the worst products and trying to come up with the best video to explain it. Because otherwise, if, if you can make a you know, boring product interesting – like, I had a review once a speaker that attaches to a window – that makes the whole audio. I remember that. I know what you're talking about. And, I forget what it's called, but I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so there's, there's this, it's a cool little device, but like it's not exactly exciting. And it's kind of to do an audio review. Uh, this was, it was going to be like a tester video, and it was a fun video, and I enjoyed doing that. And it, that's that was something that I really enjoy doing. That makes me happy. I really love making video. I love writing scripts. I like actually screwing up with a teleprompter, which I've done millions of times. Um, but I, I've been thinking about this. And I was just talking to Andrew about this. Andrew Zarian runs this network about doing things that makes me happy on a daily basis. And I don't know if I'm doing enough of that. Do, do you do anything on a daily basis that keeps you happy? 
Ah, that's a good question. Um, my, my, my goal is less, or my methodology is, is, well, you know what? You're right. Because I do try to, uh, I've always said you should try at least once a day, do something that's just for you. And even people who, um, related to that, even people who work for, let's say a big media company or a big company of any sort, and you work on projects, you don't own those projects. The company owns those. Everyone should have something that they personally sort of own. If you're a creative person like you do with this podcast or any other projects that you do, uh, like I always did with little, you know, personal websites I did on the side or music or now uh, the book I'm writing and things like that. Um, so, so it's about carving out some space that's your space while you're still being very attentive and, and, and very involved with your, let's say, day job, which frankly someone else owns. It's interesting to hear you talk about the teleprompter. I, I almost never think about this, but in, in 10 years at CNET, uh, doing all the videos that I've done, I've never used a teleprompter once. I just wing it every time. I just kind of think about it when I'm going into the room and I just go, blah. And that kind of comes from being a radio DJ where you're just live on the air with no net and that's it. Yeah, I used to do a lot of unscripted stuff, but like the prompters is like relatively helpful, especially when I have no idea what I'm talking about. So, or like I'll write something like a week in advance and I'm like, what am I talking about? I have no idea. And like, it's almost like I'm reading it for the first time again. Um, but yeah, the prompter, I like, I like using a prompter. I will not lie about that because sometimes it's fun. Uh, otherwise, if I think too much, I'll start doing these crazy run on sentences, which becomes a pain for editors. That's basically oh, yeah, why yeah. I do it. Because I want to give them the yeah, you want to give them the clean breaks and everything. Totally. Yeah. And so the other thing is like, you know, I forget sometimes I I'm thinking, what do I do to make myself happy? Well, I do this show, that's one of them. I talk to people about this kind of stuff. But I've done these series of crazy events to make my life more I mean, I guess full of happiness. My commute is thirty minutes door to door. And I, I'm just realizing this right now as I'm talking to you, like, oh, wait a second. I did this massive change. I live in a small apartment just so I can have this small commute. I live in a really nice neighborhood. Not, I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying, like, I'm, I'm the scum of the neighborhood, okay? I am the low-class, horrible, worst thing in the neighborhood. So that's pretty good. I mean, I, I, I can live with me. Uh, and I've done all that's these things. That's how I used to feel living on Spring Street for so many years. <laughs> I was like, who are these people? Do they know I live here? I don't think I'm allowed. Well, I mean, like, the, the stuff that people throw out, I'm like, wow, this is amazing stuff. They're throwing out stuff that's more expensive than the stuff I own. So this is good. And I live by some parks. I live by Central Park. I live by Riverside Park. So it's really nice. And like I've set this life up for myself where if I, if, if I ever get irritated, I, all I have to really do is like stop and think and look around and go, I work at a really stable company with very sane people, very professional people. I used to work somewhere else, which was not exactly professional or sane. And then I live in a, like the, one of the best cities on the planet. So if I could just be mindful of that instead of being like, oh, that guy just spilled his freaking coffee in my thumb. I'm going to kill him. Instead of that, you know, it, it's such a weird thing. Have you ever, like, I guess I, what I'm saying is I need to stop taking things for granted. Have, do you, have you ever found yourself doing that where you're just like, you know I, what? I, I identify exactly with what you said. Uh, I've, I've really gone through the same exact thought process as you, especially when I had like a 15-minute commute from uh, – uh, Broadway Lafayette up to 28th Street on the 6th train. That might have been the best Ooh. commute of, of, of all time. But even now in, in the brownstone neighborhood of Brooklyn I live in, which is one of those uh, ones I write the New York Times stories about where people are moving back to Manhattan because they can't afford it anymore, I go, you know what? This is not where I would have chosen, but it's worked out pretty well. And you know, as a native New Yorker, I always knew that this is where I've never really felt the need or desire to live anywhere else. Um, but I, and I also know there's so many people out there who would kill to work with people like you and I and work at the place that we work and do the stuff that we do, uh, especially the things that uh, uh, that we do and the groups that we work with do. Uh, I, I love the you talking about writing product reviews. The greatest thing about product reviews and the way that CNET does them is that they're essentially all long-form sort of hands-on features, and you can take your time and wrap your head around a project. Um, it's not this quick-hit internet content where it's like, get it up today. What does it mean? Who cares? Just get some clicks. And being sort of um, um, shielded from that uh, is, is so great for, I think, my personal development uh, and my personal sanity, and, and I, I feel like you feel the same way. Um, so, so I try never to take that for granted, uh, because look what happened this week. Uh, some guys who were kind of the biggest guys in the biz had to sell their company uh, because while they had a very nice product, they had 45 full-time employees to support and starting you know, their own web company from scratch, even when they got outside investment, the business model just was not working out. Look at that thing. I forgot about that. That was this week. 
Oh, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of smart there's a lot of people writing the same I think very smart take about the value of the individual versus the brand uh, uh, when it comes to what we do or what other journalists do. Um, and it, it, you can have a very valuable personal brand, but that doesn't mean it's a business model. I mean, look, look, look what happened to Andrew Sullivan. I mean, he was one of the most successful sort of standalone bloggers ever, and he uh, left all his different places he used to write for to start his own uh, website, and he shut that down in like in a year. Do you have any, any like unfulfilled dreams? Because right now I'm basically living my dream. I'm doing pretty much everything I want to do. And this is not to brag. And this is part of the whole idea of being happy. It's like, that's what makes me happy is like actually chasing a dream. I, I had a, a bunch of years where I wasn't doing what I liked. I was also doing, um, what was the other thing? I remember failing like crazy. And the, by the way, failure is always going to happen. Do you have any dreams that you have just left on, uh, away or if you've pursued everything? Oh, that's interesting. I think I'm getting closer um, I always wanted to uh, uh, reach a large audience uh, by writing, and I've done that. I wanted to be in broadcasting. I did that early on, and I do a lot more of that now than I ever did before. Uh, something you're starting to do more of now, and I'm sure you find that very fulfilling also, doing like you know new shows and network stuff, uh, which is a whole different sort of feel and vibe than, than online uh, uh, you know, publishing. Uh, even I started off in print magazines, and getting to do that again now that we're doing a print magazine at work is really great. But frankly, my, my, my big ambition for many, many years uh, was to do something that was more sort of long form and more something that, that you could pick up 100 years from now uh, when all of these web servers had been erased and, and nobody could find any of these pages anymore, uh, which was to write a book. And after, after several years of kind of dancing around the edges with it, working with an agent, getting manuscripts together, not selling them, I finally did you know, sell, sell a book to a legit publisher um, which I'm work, which is kind of my weekend project for the last nine months, um, and, and and that's a big. I'll have to see what my next adventure is after that. But getting that done and getting an actual book in like bookshelves and Barnes and Noble, that you can go and look at and go, hey, look, that's me. Uh, that that's my current sort of goal I'm working towards, and one I'm I'm wrapping up very soon. So you know, I think you have to keep finding new things to do, and then finding out how you're going to do them. Well, congratulations on the book, um, and also you know, I want to ask you about writing. Um, and I'll be back on next spring to plug it. <laughs> Sounds fine to me. Um, when it comes to writing, and I used to draw a lot. I used to be, uh, I wanted to be a comic book artist when I was a kid. This is something I've never fulfilled. Maybe I will do that if I ever get good again. But I, when I would write or draw or make videos, this weird thing with me was, it was almost like there was this voice in my head saying, you have to do this. You need to get this out of your head because this information needs to be out. Like I've always been kind of, I want to say like possessed to do the work. That's what it feels like to me when I, when I get creative, it's like, okay, well you have to play the guitar now and you have to make this, you got to record all four tracks. So you got to make sure this is a song. Now it's done. Okay. Now it's out of my head. You're happy. Did, have you ever found that to be a case for you? Oh, do you have course. like you're this crazy drive and how did you deal with it? You'd be by doing those things, by, by getting them out there. And that's why over the years I've recorded like three or four albums uh, uh, that you can probably find in like iTunes or Spotify, even though they're awful. What's the band or, name? Uh, just, just me. Okay. Dan Ackerman. Don't, don't do, you know what? Let's focus on the book stuff and going forward. Let's not, let's not well, look no, but Wait, if it made you happy, I mean, I'm, let's be it serious. Did, if it, it made did. you happy, that's, that's great that you did it. That's the thing. Like, I think a lot of people are afraid of trying stuff because – Oh, they'll make fun of me, or like oh, I could fail, and I'm like, well, yeah, you can fail, and people will make fun of you anyway. It doesn't make. <laughs> That's right, and most people are not going to do those things. It's funny you you actually reminded me of one thing. Now, when I was in college as an undergrad, I was a film student. I really wanted to be like a director, like a writer director, um, and I did realize, even though I I got a lot out of that experience, I realized early on I just wasn't good at it, and and, and I think I was I had enough foresight to say. Uh, before I graduated that, wow, I, I really enjoy this. This is something I wanted to do, but you know what? I don't have that natural built-in skill set for it. Maybe if I worked at it for you know 20 years, uh, starting as a production assistant and working my way up, I could do something, but it's just not... I, I can tell I don't have the knack, the natural knack for it that some people do. Uh, and then it, uh, I did find that I had more of a knack for broadcasting, which is what my first career ended up being. Uh, so I think you have to have the wisdom... To, to take the listen to all those inputs uh, uh, of things that want to kind of get out of your head and and try them all and then figure out which ones uh, are actually right for you. How, how do you handle success? When I get some, I mm -hmm. will let you know. 
Okay, so you deny it. Um, I, I think you try to. I think if you if you're successful at doing what you want to do, um, that's that's pretty good. If if you don't if you don't go to your job every day and want to kill yourself, uh, and you feel like you're you're contributing something to the world or the conversation, uh, that's fantastic. Um, and my something I I enjoy greatly. Uh, is when I very rarely, but occasionally, get like an email or a tweet from someone who likes what I do and what you do and what we all do, and wants some advice about how to do something similar or just about being creative or being a writer. Uh, to me, that's the that's the real sign if someone asks your advice because that means they think that you've done something worthwhile, rather than whatever you think about yourself. Yeah, for the longest time, I've had. I mean, I've, I've had my share of successes. You know, you graduate school, you you know, you get jobs, all that stuff. I was terrible at handling it because i i'm i was and am very goal oriented and when i achieve a goal it's like well now what do you do i had the worst time with this um i, I guess it's like that concept of like if a dog catches a car what does it do with it like I, well i i had this happen enough times um i've had i got to have a dream job i did like i've worked some great people i've done some really great things and i'm just like well what do you what do you do now and this sounds crazy and I, i'm really curious about what your, your take is on this I sometimes find success to be a demotivator because I know I will succeed. I know this sounds crazy and it sounds really full of myself, but I'm good at some stuff. And when, it, when, when I push myself towards something, I will succeed. And I find that demotivating. What on earth do you make of that? Right. I, I think that makes actually a lot of sense to me, uh, especially, especially if, if, you're, if you're someone who can kind of focus on something and complete a goal and say, okay, I did this. Then immediately before you're even done, you go, okay, now what? And I think to keep the mind motivated is, is so key. You don't want to sort of calcify yourself and just get stuck in a rut doing the same thing, even if you're chalking up successes every time. Uh, to me, at least, the key is to take what you're doing that's successful and that you're good at and, 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 and find an angle on it. Find some new way to express that so that it is a challenge and it's not something for, you know, that you're used to. For me right now, it's writing a book instead of writing magazine and website stories. It's related but it's different enough that it presents a real challenge. And once I'm done with that, it'll be figuring something else out. Yeah. For myself, I had to, I I, I usually, the 5th of every month, my birthday's on October 5th. The 5th of every month, I will check if I'm doing better than I was doing last month. I have an Evernote thing. I actually keep track of it. And I look at things like, you know, are you exercising? Are you doing this or whatever? And the crazy thing is like, I had some goals. Like they were like, I would have pie in the sky goals. And that's actually what they call them. And I started achieving them. And I was like, oh, man, I have to come up with new ones? Because after, I mean, sometimes you don't think you're ever going to succeed at something because why would it happen? But then you do. And, um, and so if, if this is for the viewers and listeners, you know, if, if you guys are wondering, hey, how on earth do you keep doing stuff? And like, or why do you keep trying new stuff? You know, just take a look at, at how you are month to month after your birthday. A lot of people do that at, at, at the year or closer to the actual birthday. I just like to check and be like, Okay, good. And actually, have something tangible. Have you ever tried um, something like futureme.org or futureme where you can actually send yourself a message? No. I, you know what? I've heard of that. I feel like I'm out of the demographic for that. I'm a little bit older. Uh, and, 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 and a lot of the stuff that, that, dare I say, the young people do online uh, <laughs> kind of goes over my head, and that is one of them. Well, I, I, I quite enjoy seeing uh, letters to myself be like, okay, have you gotten it together yet? It's like, no. Did you do this? No, I forgot I had that dream. It's, it's kind of neat to see that every now and then. Yeah, if uh, we could actually do that, you see, that would be a whole other story. Then it would just all be stock tips and <laughs> and you know things like that. And oh no, then, it's, it's where you write a you write a note and then you say deliver it to me in a year or five months from now. And that's it's it's um it's it's a website. I use that every now and then. Where listen, you get stuck back in time. You go to Western Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doc Brown tells them to find Marty McFly a hundred years in the future and give him this letter. Once we get that going, I, I I think it's all great. Okay, that would be that would be wonderful. Like, oh, here are all the secrets. Now you know how to be happy. And that's another thing. Like I was joking around uh, earlier today about you know when will I ever be peaceful? And I'm like maybe if I'm dead because they say you rest in peace. But like I, I don't know if that's the case. And that's the thing. Like, I think by thinking about it so much, you can make yourself miserable. 
And that's why the you, mindfulness stuff is so important. Is because I'm going to give you a positive spin on that, actually, uh, based on something I read in another uh, uh, kind of uh, meditation practice book, uh, which is a way to sort of just for a moment lift the anxiety and the weight of responsibilities from your shoulder. Uh, and this is something good to practice when like, you're standing like a crowded subway platform or something. You're thinking about all the things that you have responsibility for and you have to do that are weighing on you. If you actually do imagine, and this sounds morbid, but it's not, that you are dead. Uh, and that if you were literally just not there, all those things that you feel personally responsible for, paying the electric bill, you have an assignment due at work, uh, uh, you have to buy a birthday present for somebody, all those things just evaporate if you're not there. They don't actually exist, which means that they really only exist in your head, so you can actually put them aside for you know, as, long as, you, as long as you feel like. And the description of imagining that you're dead is a little bit, again, a little bit morbid and not entirely correct, but try that as an exercise or just imagine that you're not there and see everyone else standing on the subway platform just going on with their lives as if uh, that didn't matter because it doesn't. Uh, it's actually very freeing. You know, I've never tried that before. This is the first time I've heard, imagine that you're dead. That I can do. I think I'm going to try to watch that everyone else just going on with their lives. And the fact that you forgot to get a birthday present for your mother or brother or somebody, but you know what? It's not that big a deal. I think we got to wrap up, Dan. Is there anything you'd like to impart any wisdom or like you want to promo stuff, whatever you want to do floor is yours. I, this has been a fantastic experience. I, I do enjoy talking about all this stuff and I rarely do it. Uh, because I feel like I, I'm such a novice at it. So I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to come on here and, and chat about this. And uh, I enjoy working with you. Uh, you've been a great addition to our, to our team in New York, uh, a very longstanding team. I'm coming up on 10 years at CNET. I'm still the new guy in that New York Reviews group. Uh, uh, we, we can go through all the, all, all the uh, people's dates and, and longevity uh, uh, in the office sometime, and, and, I'll, and I'll point that out to you. It'll blow your mind. Uh, but this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for being on. I really did appreciate this, and I got some insights here. And that's 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 what this show is really about. It's uh, you know, if if you're if you're listening to this and you're having a lousy day, it it doesn't have to be too bad. And if you want to see that people struggle, yeah, people struggle. I struggle all the time when it comes to trying to figure out you know how to keep myself sane, which is is it sounds depressing, but you know what? You're not in a, you're not alone if you're if you're having a bad day. And if you're having a good day, keep it up. That's a good attitude. I really do uh, think that's a great thing. Um, this, this show is on gfqnetwork.com. You can get the archives there. We have an email address. So if you want, you want to contact me and be like, hey, look, I, got, I really have some trouble. Or you're like thinking, I have a great tip. This is going to help you. Uh, you can let us know at quest at gfqnetwork.com. Um, let's see what else. There's a Twitter account now. So if you want to tweet at the show, you can. It's at Quest for Peace TV. Or you can tweet at me. I'm at Ayaz. You can do whatever you want. I mean, it, it's it's pretty simple. I get back to Twitter a lot easier than I do emails, so uh, just keep hanging there. I will get back to you at some point. Dan, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciated this. This was great. And uh, well, I think we'll see everybody next time. Thank you. And I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> yes, tomorrow. <laughs>